0: Hi everybody, Liam here. Before we kick off today's episode, I just wanna start on a quick celebratory note. This month is the 50th anniversary of Oakland's very own Sickle Cell Clinic, which is operated by UCSF Benioff Children's Hospitals. The origins of this program go back to 1973 when the Black Panther Party launched a community clinic alongside nurses and doctors uh, right here in Oakland. It was the first of its kind and it focused on helping a population left behind by the mainstream medical establishment. Today, this clinic is a core part of UCSF Benioff Children's Hospitals, and it continues to represent the cutting edge of sickle cell care and research. All these years later, they're still developing revolutionary treatments right here in the town. If you want to hear more about this fascinating history, you can check out Revolutionary Care, an Oakland Story, which is a great podcast produced by UCSF Benioff Children's Hospitals. You can find it anywhere you get podcasts, and I'll also drop a link in the show notes. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday, this show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin.
1: In 1972,
0: Laura Brown, who was only 19 years old, started the Oakland Feminist Women's Health Center. Here's how she would give directions to people looking for it. Quote, drive down Telegraph, turn left down a really grungy alley, and then go right past that collapsed building with a junked car in front of it. In the early days, Laura would answer the phone using different voices so it sounded like there were multiple people working there. And pretty soon there were (laughs) multiple people working there and she didn't have to use those uh, fake voices anymore. Even though this health center provided a range of services, to call it a clinic, would be an understatement. For one, Laura lived there with several other women, so this tiny little building in North Temescale was also a home. On a practically non-existent budget, these women ran a 24-hour abortion hotline. They provided pregnancy screenings, helped with Medi-Cal enrollments, and hosted educational seminars on everything from puberty to menopause. Also it was the unofficial headquarters for a growing local reproductive rights movement. From these humble beginnings, the Oakland Feminist Women's Health Center would eventually grow into an institution that would serve countless patients, put dozens, if not hundreds of people from poor and marginalized backgrounds on paths towards becoming healthcare professionals, and it would have a historic impact on the very trajectory of reproductive justice. Here's just one example. They started the first sperm bank that was willing to serve single women and lesbians. Guess who didn't like that? (laughs) Pretty much all the other sperm banks that only served hetero couples. Some of these, you know, mainstream sperm banks even said that it was a conspiracy. This was a conspiracy against men. Writing about this controversy in a brand new book, Angela Hume says that, quote, The sperm bank exemplified the health center's belief that body sovereignty was not only about the right to choose abortion, but also the right to choose pregnancy. The book that Angela wrote is called Deep Care, the radical activists who provided abortions, defied the law, and fought to keep clinics open. Given the ongoing rollback of reproductive rights in this country, This book could not come at a more vital time. So, in this episode of East Bay Yesterday, you'll be hearing my interview with Angela Hume. We talk about everything from underground crews of DIY abortion providers to (laughs) using stink bombs in the battle against militant pro-lifers. I'm Liam O'Donoghue, stay tuned. Angela Hume, we are here today to talk about your brand new book, Deep Care, which covers a lot of history, but the Women's Choice Clinic here in Oakland is really at the center of the story. So I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about this clinic and what inspired you to make this specific clinic kind of like the anchor of your book and everything else that it kind of, you know, the whole book kind of ties back to this one place. So what was so unique and special about this place?
2: That is a great question. Thank Uh you so much, Liam. Um, I'm so happy to be having this conversation with you. Thank you. Um, Yes, I'm happy to tell you about the Women's Choice Clinic of Oakland, which is indeed an anchor of my book, Deep Care. The Oakland Women's Choice Clinic started out as the Oakland Feminist Women's Health Center. Um, which was the name of the like, non-profit container organization. And Women's Choice Clinic was the name of the abortion clinic that was established in 1973. Oakland Feminist Women's Health Center started in 1972, originally as um, a very homey health center that was located in a tiny two-bedroom house on a street off of Telegraph Avenue in Temescal.
0: Yeah. Crazily started by a 19-year-old, who is a character I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later in the interview, but I mean, it really was like as grassroots as it got, right, when it started.
2: Yeah. Laura Brown was 19 years old when she came up from Southern California, where she'd been learning about the gynecological and abortion self-help movement, and she brought that movement to Oakland and started the health center. And this was before Roe v. Wade. And so at that time, in the very early 1970s, the health center was um, you know, running an abortion referral service and a crisis hotline. And they were also teaching what are called self-help classes. And self-help classes were uh, group meetings in which participants got together and taught each other about gynecology.
0: Yeah, this is really interesting because I think when people hear the term self-help, you know, they think of like the self-help section in the bookstore, which is like how to manage your time better. This is the context of what you're talking about is is very different. So um, explain like what self-help meant in, in these circles of women.
2: Self-help was group practice in which participants got together to learn about, study and practice gynecology. And they studied sexual anatomy and pleasure, orgasm, fertility tracking. Um, They learned about STIs, um, how to do pelvic exams, and um, importantly, eventually, how to do a procedure that they called menstrual extraction, where they would, using very simple technology made out of uh, equipment that they mostly sourced from their households or hardware stores or aquarium stores, the kinds of materials that today you could buy on the internet.
0: But like we're talking about like jars and tubes and things like that. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, yeah.
2: T- I'll tell you more about this device in just yeah. a little bit. But they learned how to empty the contents of the uterus using very simple technology. Mm-hmm. And they called that procedure menstrual extraction. So in Los Angeles, a group of activists had sort of developed these self-help techniques and practices in a small group setting. And the reason that they did this originally in the very early 1970s was because they were interested in um, learning how to use new technology available to them that made early abortion procedures simple Mm -hmm. and relatively easy to perform, Mm -hmm. Uh, namely early suction abortion procedures using flexible plastic cannulas. They learned how to – they started studying and learning about how to – perform abortions using this new, simpler technology in hopes of starting their own underground service.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And just to give a little context, the other options for getting an abortion at this time were often very dangerous, right? Or expensive or just like sketchy. And like they were basically, when you boil it all down, trying to make abortion safer and easier and more accessible for women who needed that procedure. Right.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, before Roe v. Wade came down, uh, the laws were made at the state level, and in California, um, after 1967, you could get what was called a therapeutic abortion. Mm. But therapeutic abortions were actually very difficult to obtain because mm. you had to have a doctor and other clinic staff and a psychiatrist like sign off on your therapeutic abortion, and so they weren't accessible, and mm. so even in California, where the laws were slightly more liberal than in some other parts of the country, Mm -hmm. um, you know, many women would have to find a local doctor who was willing to perform an abortion, um, despite the law, or they would have to travel to Mexico or Puerto Rico to obtain an abortion illegally. Mm -hmm. So, you know, of course there was just tons of activism happening around abortion access in the 1960s -hmm. and, um... You know, in my book, I write a bit about uh, a group of activists called the Society for Humane Abortion that just they were sort of like the precursors to the gynecological and abortion self-help movement. And they were Pat McGinnis and Lana Clark Phelan and Rowena Gerner.
0: And they were based here in the Bay Area, right?
2: They were based here in the Bay Area, and they just did a tremendous amount of work, both above ground and underground, to not only test the laws and try Mm -hmm. to get a case to sort of work its way up the courts and eventually change abortion law, but they were also um, running an extensive referral service and helping connect women with providers, uh, licensed and unlicensed, Mm -hmm. in Mexico, Puerto Rico, and Japan.
0: Your book kind of traces the origins and then the evolution of this whole movement um, that goes through kind of various phases, and and you cover so much history in the book; it's incredible. Um, but again, kind of getting back to this one clinic that's sort of at the core of of your story. Um, before we get into all the various kind of um, details, because you interviewed so many people who were involved with this clinic for decades, from the seventies um, up through you know the early two thousands, even. Just so one one broad question I'm wondering about is, um, in addition to being a history of reproductive rights, it's also a queer history, this book, because there's so many lesbian characters who are involved in this movement, at the core of this movement, the founders, the people that ran the clinics. What do you think drew so many queer women, queer people to this particular clinic and this particular movement?
2: That's a great question. Um, before I answer that question, Liam, I'll just kind of go back a little bit and uh, tell you the story of how I came to the Oakland Feminist Women's Health Center. please do. Women's Choice Mm -hmm. history. So I didn't set out to write a story about the gynecological and abortion self-help movement. In fact, I was writing a book about poets who were also health activists, specifically women poets, queer women poets who were or are also health activists and who were Looking at the relationship between um, environmental injustice and their own embodied health. Wow. So I was writing about Audre Lorde and Judy Grahn, another longtime Bay Area poet, culture theorist, activist, and Pat Parker. And Pat Parker was a black, lesbian, feminist, poet, revolutionary. <laughs> and she was, she
0: was briefly in the Black Panthers, if I remember correctly. She
2: was. When she first came to the San Francisco Bay Area, she was a member of the Black Panther Party. So... She was just a total radical and revolutionary, and I was interested in writing about Parker, um, who uh, died of breast cancer in 1989, and thought a lot about the relationship between mm-hmm. her environment and her embodied health. But because Parker, unlike poets like Audre Lorde and Audrey Rich, Rich, um, never taught at mm-hmm. the university, uh, she was very working class identified, mm-hmm. um, not an academic poet, Uh, There just isn't a lot of information that's published out there about her life. Mm -hmm. So I was interested in learning about Parker's life. And I had read that for something like 10 years, she had worked at the Oakland Feminist Women's Health Center and Women's Choice Clinic in Oakland. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting. Like, what's the story there, right? Mm. But there wasn't anything really out there.
0: What's the story indeed? We will get to that in just a minute, but before we go any farther, I think now would be an appropriate time to hear from Pat Parker in her own words. Tragically, she's been gone for more than three decades now, but luckily, there's a recording of Pat reading one of her poems back in 1986, and I'm going to share a short clip from that reading right now. Here's radical poet and former Women's Choice Clinic director, Pat Parker, with Maybe I should have been a teacher.
1: The next person who asks, have you written anything new? Just might get hit. (laughs) Or at least snarled at or cursed out. I got a week's vacation from work, the first in at least two years. The first day of my vacation, I cleaned my house, scrubbed walls and floors, prepared it and me to write. The second day of my vacation, I bought two reams of paper, a new ribbon for my typewriter, groceries to last the week. The third day of vacation, the dog comes home from his nocturnal run. He doesn't eat. His nose is dry. Off to the vet. Parvovirus. He'll die, no doubt. But I doubt. Been my dog for 12 years, and I'm not ready for him to die. So antibiotics and broth every two hours, and maybe he'll live. Pick up the kid, teacher says, she's been quiet today. My kid is many different things at different times. What she's not is quiet. (laughs) Take the kid home, temperature 104 degrees, call Alicia, what do you do for fever? Aspirin, liquids, no drafts, so the routine begins. Give the dog his medicine, give the kid her medicine try and get his stool for the vet, try and get her to stay in bed. Three days later, the dog is fine, the kid is fine, I'm exhausted, and it's time to go back to work.
2: I define the story, right? Yeah. So so keep yeah. in mind, I'm like a poetry scholar. I'm not a historian, you know? Okay. <laughs> um, and so I thought, well, maybe someone who worked at that clinic with Parker would be willing to talk to me. And so I started doing like newspaper searches on Women's Choice Clinic and trying to kind of get the story of the clinic. Mm -hmm. And I kept coming across this name, Lindsay Comey, who was Mm -hmm. apparently a longtime director. And so I um, tried a phone number that I had found for Lindsay, uh, and it was defunct. And then I tried messaging her on Instagram. And she she messaged me back right away, and I said, you know, dear Lindsay Comey, do you, did you work with Pat Parker at the Oakland Feminist Women's Health Center and Women's Choice Clinic? Yeah. And she said, yes, I did for many years.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Emoji heart, emoji heart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. I was I was like, would you be willing to talk to me ah. about Pat Parker? Mm-hmm. And so in the summer of 2018, I um I went to Lindsay's house in Oakland, and she met with me, and I got to her house, and you know, like. A lot of old radicals in the Bay Area. She has like, you know, movement posters in her windows and an old Women's Choice Clinic placard like propped up on the sill and uh, like a pirate ship puppet kind of hanging from the alcove ceiling uh, outside her house. And she lets me into her house and we sit down at the table and she starts telling me the story of Pat Parker, but also the story of Women's Choice Clinic. Mm. And I was just completely wrapped Um, The story of the clinic is amazing. Like, you could go there for your abortion care and also for just general sexual health education. Um, You could go to learn about about self-help, which in a clinic setting, activists called participatory clinic. So how to perform cervical exam, how to perform a breast exam. Um, You could get birth control at the clinic. You could get STI screening. You could get a vasectomy if you're a person with sperm. Uh, In the 1980s, you could buy sperm and get help with insemination. Um, You could go to the clinic if you were queer, if you were uninsured, if you were a pregnant minor, if you didn't speak English, if you were HIV positive, if you were a man, if you were a trans person. Like, the clinic just kind of served anybody and everybody.
0: And a lot of the people that worked there were, like, from these populations. They were, like, working class women, a lot of women of color. And so I think... There was that level of comfort as well for these patients kind of working or you know having to um, interact with people who they could relate to.
2: Yeah, that's right. Especially in the nineteen eighties. Um, and really, really across the decades, the clinic reflected. The clinic was its community, right? Mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. it was staffed by the people it served. Um, so the story of the clinic is amazing, right? And I'm talking to Lindsay Comey and it's just sort of registering. And so I thought okay, okay, like I'm writing this book about poetry, but maybe I could also write about the clinic history. Maybe I'll write like an article. And so I started interviewing other people who worked at Women's Choice Clinic. And I don't know, like two years into my research, abortion law just really started to implode. Mm. And um, uh, like a group of multi-generational activists came together and decided among themselves that they wanted to come forward about some of the underground work they were doing alongside their above-ground clinic work. And then the project really took off. In
0: 1971, a suburban mom from Orange County invented a device that she called the Dell M. It was easy and affordable to get the materials to make a Dell M at home. And the purpose of this device was extracting the contents of the uterus. This next clip is from a 1989 documentary, and it features the Dell M's inventor, Lorraine Rothman, explaining why she wanted to empower women with this technology.
4: The reasons why women may want to use this technique, and some of them are, make it quite popular, is um, there are some women who find that they have quite strong cramps, when they uh, have their periods. And uh, menstrual extraction can help alleviate uh, the cramps by removing, in in many cases, the clots that could create the cramps. Of course, the most popular reason is the fact that menstrual extraction can be used to remove a fertilized egg if a woman should suspect that she became impregnated one of those times in the previous month then on or about the time of her period, she can call her group together and they can suction the contents and and remove her menstrual flow. And uh, almost always also get that little fertilized egg as well, if there is one there.
0: Even though abortion was declared a constitutional right after 1973, clandestine groups of women kept meeting to learn, share, and pass down the knowledge of how to perform menstrual extractions. In her book, Angela Hume explains the many reasons why this self-help movement, as it was known, continued despite the fact that abortion was technically legal. And In chapter 7, Angela shares a story of what it was like to actually be a part of one of these secretive crews that performed menstrual extractions. Here's Angela reading a section from that chapter, which is titled, No One Person Has the Power.
2: Isabel and Fuchsia explained to me when we met in the park that if someone was going to have a procedure, group members would have communicated by phone about it beforehand using a secret code. Fuchsia was pretty sure it was spaghetti dinner with red sauce. They would have shown up ready to get to work since the procedure takes time. Picture this, Fuchsia said. You're in someone's bedroom. The person receiving a procedure is propped up by pillows, comfy as can be. They're only undressed from the waist down. They're cozy and wearing socks. There's a circle around them. Someone's holding the flashlight. Flashlight holding is an important job in and of itself, Isabel explained, because you're keeping an eye on the big picture, holding the space and watching to make sure no one breaks sterility. The person receiving the extraction is wearing sunglasses so the flashlight doesn't get in their eyes. There's a support person or two breathing with them, maybe doing acupressure points. There are a couple of tech people passing the instruments and there's someone doing the suctioning itself. It wasn't until she'd been practicing for almost three years that Isabel took on the role of inserting the cannula and doing the suctioning. Many times she'd practiced inserting a cannula just barely into an os. The os is the opening at the center of the cervix which is the opening of the uterus. But in the case of an actual menstrual extraction, you have to apply pressure to get the cannula through. That feeling of pushing and actually being inside, you have to have a mental image of how big the uterus is so you can know how far you can go. Isabel said it was the scariest part for her. You have to push hard enough to get to the place you're going, but if you push too hard, you could perforate. Inserting the cannula all the way was thrilling to her. She would think, oh my god, I did it. Now, whenever she has the experience of jiggling a key in a sticky lock, she thinks of getting through the oss.
0: Thank you so much for reading that. It's such a vivid um, description. I think it gives people a really powerful sense of of what these women were doing in these groups. Um, And I think something that's going to come into a lot of people's minds as they hear that is the question, is this safe? Uh, We all know doctors... Go to school for a very long time to learn their crafts, and these are people who are not certified medical doctors. These are mostly women training each other in you know bedrooms and basements. Um, what what did you hear from people when you asked about that, like the safety concerns, the dangers of this? Um, how how did they address the fact that they were technically engaging in illegal an illegal medical procedure?
2: You know, one self-helper who I interviewed a number of times, um, who in the book I call Simone, went on to become a gynecologist. And in 2021, I did ask her whether she thought lay people should learn and practice menstrual extraction. And I'll just share with you what she had to say. Simone said, I would say surgical abortion should be done in a medical setting because that's the safest But I would also say that birth should be done in a medical setting, because that's the safest. I recognize that in the U.S., people choose to have births outside of the hospital, and I respect patient autonomy. Abortion and birth outside of the hospital are not the same thing. But I also recognize that surgical abortion outside of a medical setting has had a historical role and may continue to have a role depending on the political situation. So Simone's comments suggest that, like while medical settings complete with imaging and other technology, along with licensed professionals, help facilitate safe delivery and abortion procedures, there are reasons why patients might opt for alternative settings, and crucially, if medical settings are not available, people will still both give birth and terminate pregnancies. I'm more or less sharing a paragraph from my book here. Therefore, the question of whether lay people should learn how to do section abortions is basically moot because in reality, people will simply learn how to do what they need to know how to do, even in the absence of supportive healthcare infrastructure.
0: Imagine if going to work meant that you'd have to walk through a mob of people, screaming in your face, threatening to kill you. Maybe one of them really does have a gun or a Molotov cocktail and plans to make good on those threats. This scenario was reality for more and more abortion providers starting in the 1980s. Right-wing opposition groups, often collectively referred to as antis, were getting organized, and increasingly violent. Angela writes that by 1983, there had been more than 20 bombings and arsons of clinics nationwide. One of the most notorious anti-groups was called Operation Rescue. After forming in 1987, they spread throughout the country. One of their main tactics was creating blockades around clinics to prevent anyone from entering. Patients and providers who tried to push through these mobs faced harassment and even violence. One of the major organizations that opposed the antis was called Bay Area Coalition Against Operation Rescue, which later changed its name to Bay Area Coalition for our reproductive rights. Either way, it was often simply referred to as Bay Corps. Besides confronting Operation Rescue OR, uh, throughout Northern California, Bay Corps also sent activists to other cities throughout the country to train and support clinic defenders in places like New Orleans and Buffalo. Here's a clip from a training video that Bay Corps produced to spread their message.
3: The Bay Area Coalition against Operation Rescue is a coalition of women and men committed to defense of our reproductive rights we defend local abortion clinics against attempted blockades and harassment by Operation Rescue. This video shows techniques for escorting clients past Operation Rescue pickets and methods for successful clinic defense. When we do weekly client escorting, our main task is to keep Operation Rescue at bay and shift the focus away from the area where clients are approaching the clinic. Operation Rescue comes to clinics to harass women. We put ourselves between them and Operation Rescue sidewalk counselors. Part of escorting includes verbal and sometimes physical confrontation with OR, but also more subtle and creative techniques for diverting their attention from the clients. While some people do that, others make sure the clients get in safely. One of the diversionary tactics is to put OR on the defensive
1: about my own behavior. Get out of my face. Women are responsible beings. They make decisions based upon things in their life that you have nothing to do with. And you can't get over yourself.
0: So, these clinic battles for lack of a better term are escalating and they really were battles at some point with, you know, dozens and dozens of people on each side uh often breaking out into physical violence. Uh and where was the law in all this? Were were there laws against uh, shutting down abortion clinics? Were there law? Were there police officers on site? Like, what role did law enforcement and uh, you know legislation play in these kind of increasingly escalating showdowns where people really were getting hurt?
2: Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question. So, after Operation Rescue comes on the scene in the 1980s into the early 1990s. Clinic defense was this incredibly intense experience of, you know, clinic defenders organizing, getting clinic defenders out early in the morning, ideally to be at that clinic door before OR arrives in order to be able to hold the door and keep the clinic open. Um, You know, sometimes hundreds of clinic defenders would come to face off with hundreds of OR members, right? Um, The role of the cops, I mean – Many clinic defenders have described to me a situation in which basically the cops were there to protect OR. Um, Clinic defenders explained that cops would simply ignore OR. Clinic defenders gave testimony to experiencing uh, police violence. Um, They faced charges There was a Bay Corps member in the Bay Area who was beaten by the cops at one point and hospitalized. And so, you know, um, in the course of my research, I heard multiple testimonies from Bay Corps members of uh, police violence against clinic defenders or police indifference or apathy in the face of OR harassment. Um, In 1994, a federal law went into effect that made it a crime to block a clinic's entrance. Um, And that essentially ended this era of mass clinic blockades by Operation Rescue. It was called the FACE Act, the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act. That law still stands. And um, there were many implications of the FACE Act. Once again, one was that it uh, stopped the mass blockades, more or less. But even though the FACE Act made it a crime to block an entrance, it didn't criminalize many forms of harassment that antis um, did outside of clinics. So um, the writer Lauren Rankin, in her recent book, Bodies on the Line, which is about clinic escorting, really essential book, uh, she cites a congressional report that, Said that clinics around the United States actually experienced more anti abortion protesting outside of their buildings after the FACE Act was passed, not less. So the FACE Act helped in some ways um, and also didn't help.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it kind of just sounds like uh, in a lot of these cases, even if the letter of the law was on the side of the people trying to defend clinics uh the law enforcement personnel on the front lines was probably more sympathetic to the uh, anti side of the of the struggle at least in in the way that their behavior demonstrated
2: yeah Corps members told me about their experience learning about the fact that there were cops in OR or who had direct ties to people in OR. So it's clear whose side they were on.
0: Um,
2: this I'm, is interesting.
0: This, this kind of reminds me of like, it just again, putting it in sort of recent context, like how during um, the uh, pandemic, there was all these laws like, oh, you know, uh, government orders coming down about like things that need to be shut down or masking orders and there were so many sheriffs who were like yeah uh, we disagree we're not going to enforce it so i mean the law really kind of only depends on the people enforcing it and if they disagree then you know what what is the law really when it comes down to it
2: that's right that's exactly right i mean you know the face act is interesting to be looking at right now because we actually are seeing a rise in clinic blockade type behavior around the country. We're seeing more sort of anti-abortion presence in front of clinics. Um, in August, uh, notably, five people were convicted on face charges, face law charges, yeah. for blockading a clinic in Washington, DC. So um, it'll it'll be interesting to sort of track this and see what happens um, as the anti-movement starts to resuscitate some of these old tactics, despite the fact that there is a federal law in place prohibiting yeah.
0: Well, I mean, it's scary. I mean, you know, as someone who studies history, I often see these things go in cycles. And it is really scary to think about that cycle repeating because, again, as you described in the book, it kind of started with a lot of these, you know, confrontational tactics at clinics, trying to block women from getting abortions. And then, of course, it escalated. Uh, you mentioned, um, quoting again from um, the book, how uh, during the first seven months of 1994, More than half of U.S. abortion clinics experienced death threats, stalkings, bombings, invasions, arsons, and blockade. By the end of that year, there had been four murders and eight attempted murders of abortion workers. I mean, you describe things in the book like elderly women in their 70s who work at these clinics wearing bulletproof vests to work. And so if this kind of militant anti-abortion activism is ramping up again, there is a pattern that it tends to follow. And it's it's really quite terrifying. I mean, I don't think using the word terrorist is, is too strong.
2: No, I would agree. And actually, that older woman who was a clinic escort in Oakland who wore the bulletproof vest uh, to clinic escorting that I mentioned in my book, that was Pat McGinnis. She was a clinic mm-hmm. escort into, mm-hmm. the, into the 2000s, the same Pat McGinnis who founded and ran the Society for Humane Abortion Um, doing abortion referrals and um, trying to get the laws changed back in the 1960s and early 1970s. So she just passed away recently but she was a she was a lifelong abortion defender
3: we have organized to stop Nazi skinheads and homophobic organizations from meeting in our communities and have exposed and demonstrated against corporate sponsors of anti-abortion groups and we demonstrate at OR gatherings. Much of what we do involves creative and colorful props and artwork to convey our message. We are not afraid to get into the streets and into their faces to fight for our rights. Sometimes,
0: the showdowns between Corps and Operation Rescue would be massive. In 1993, for example, about a thousand pro-choice activists converged on San Jose to face down a a huge contingent of antis. Uh, For that action, Berkeley City Council even sponsored one of the buses that brought down Corps members. But other times, actions would be carried out by small, secretive groups looking to uh, throw the metaphorical monkey wrench into the OR machine, I asked Angela to tell me about one particularly memorable mission that uh, didn't exactly go as planned.
2: You know, at that time, BayCor was building up its intelligence arm in addition to developing high-level tactics for defending clinics against antis at the doors. Um, and so, members of Baycor would infiltrate OR, right? They would go um, embed themselves in OR to learn about OR's plans uh, for clinic hits, where they were going to hit, um, what they intended to do. And then they would take that information that they learned and they would bring it back to Baycor. Um, the story that you're referring to is the story of three Baycor members who. Um, Infiltrated OR not necessarily just to get intel to then relay back to Bay Corps, but actually to shut the OR meeting down. So oftentimes Operation Rescue would have uh, meetings, rallies like the night before a hit in order to kind of rile everybody up and give people information about where they would hit the next day. So Vanessa, this is a pseudonym, told me about a time that she and a couple of others infiltrated OR to shut down that meeting, so that OR could not announce the next day's meeting spot. So the the sort of tactical goal of this action was to prevent the next day's hit. So a bit about Vanessa, um, as she described herself to me, she was an out lesbian, she was an anarchist punk from New York who had relocated to the Bay Area, and she was like super engaged with abortion defense and Bay Corps, and this was fall of 1989. This was an intense time. Um, So it was a Friday night, and Operation Rescue was having their pre-hit rally at a very conservative church in Fremont. So Vanessa and two other Baycorps members, whose pseudonyms in the book are Willow and Suki, arrive at the church dressed like conservative Christian women. They have long... Ankle length skirts. Vanessa's got her blue hair tucked under a long wig. She's wearing this like loose fitting sweater. She looks like a Christian white woman, or <laughs> as she described it to me, a frumpy secretary. <laughs> <laughs> um, so these three young people go into the church and they are welcomed by the antis. And um, Vanessa sort of gave an account to me of. Um, You know, singing and speaking by the OR leaders. Um, And then there was a skit. And she described how on a sort of raised platform, uh, a quite flamboyant Operation Rescue member dressed in this, like, red costume with pointy horns and a staff, like, Kind of comes skidding on out onto the altar, and he's like talking about how he likes to kill babies. Vanessa tells me, he's like swishing around on the stage, and he's this, in Vanessa's words, like kind of gay pro-abortion devil. And she told me, she told me like it was clear that he loved getting to act gay. Obviously, he was gay. So, <laughs> so Operation Rescue is like trying to rile up the troops about the babies. Um, they sh- they screen a slideshow with like fake images of of mutilated fetuses and people are like whispering and getting really upset um, and it's almost time for for OR to get up and announce the location of the next day's hit mm-hmm. so that was Vanessa and her friend's cue so they leave the pew and they kind of quietly make their way to the back of the church and um, along the base of the church's walls are these like um, vents and Vanessa kind of goes into her pocket, her sweater pocket and she takes out this little vial Um, And she told me that, um, you know, she'd brought some chemicals, not chemicals that would hurt anybody, but just that would create a very powerful stink bomb. Stink bombs. (laughs) So they stink bomb the church. And suddenly, as you'd expect, everybody's freaking out and screaming and rushing the doors. And Vanessa and her two comrades, just like everyone else, rush the doors. And a security guard who she thinks maybe saw her in action, like grabs the back of her sweater and she kind of like wiggles out of it and takes off. So outside the church, Bacor is holding a counter rally. So Vanessa and Suki and Willow like join up with Bacor and try to kind of like take cover among their people. But um, you know, soon some cops approach them and cough Vanessa and Willow and like Suki had taken off on foot or something like
0: that. Busted.
2: They were busted. So then the cops like have them stand against the wall next to the church and they have them in floodlights and like ORs are swarming them, IDing them. And then vanessa and willow were i'm like
0: picturing a scooby-doo type scenario <laughs> where the cop like rips off the wig and they see like the blue mohawk underneath and they're like aha we knew it was you <laughs> that is that
2: totally <laughs> it totally could have happened i mean vanessa was just like an awesome storyteller i'm basically oh, yeah. just you know yeah. paraphrasing the yeah. exact story that she told yeah. me so they're shipped off to santa rita jail where they spend like five days according to oh. vanessa and they were banned from the entire city of Fremont for two years, wild, she said.
0: Wild, wild. Yeah. And, you know, for anyone <laughs> listening who's like, oh, they went too far. You shouldn't stink bomb a church. Let me just say, I've been to multiple punk shows where people set up stink bombs before. And it is annoying and it does smell, but it's not that big of a deal. You go outside for five minutes and you go right back in and, like, the smell clears out. And it's definitely not something that anyone should go to jail for. And, I don't know, getting banned from the city of Fremont that seems like a little bit harsh as well no it was kind
2: of extreme well i mean i did ask vanessa about this action because you know in some ways it was like a riskier sort of offensive action that baycor took this was not like sort of your standard um baycor action and she um she had the following to say to me so i'll just i'll just quote her okay so you can hear her in her own words vanessa told me that the tactics that or employed were dangerous to women threats screaming in women's faces sending in their thugs to beat up clinic defenders It took a real toll on a huge range of people. I'd like to believe that some of the things we did to counteract those tactics helped convince OR that they had to change, that going to clinics and beating up on people was a bad idea. They had to be countered.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of sort of risky actions, I wanted to ask you about another story that was risky in a different way. And this is like another, um, again, like this whole Uh, section of this book. I mean, there's just so much you cram in here. It's a big book. It's For anyone interested in this history, you really cover a lot of bases here. But the next um, section I wanted to discuss is the process of how abortion pills became legal in this country. And this is another story I had no idea about. And I was surprised because this seems like such an important chapter of recent history, Bay Area history. But it had to do with this woman named Leona Benton from Berkeley. So can you tell us who Leona Benton was and this huge risk that she took in service of, you know, this goal that she was trying to achieve?
2: Yeah. So um, Leona Benton was in 1992 a person who um, was seeking an abortion. And she also happened to be a radical badass (laughs) with connections to Women's Choice Clinic. And um, just to give you a little bit of context and background, abortion with pills was introduced in 1988 after like six years of um, research and clinical trials in Europe. And the abortion pill was originally called RU486 in France, where it was developed. And in the United States context, because of the political situation, there was a lot of hostility toward possible introduction of abortion with pills. Basically, the right had said that, you know, they were going to boycott any company that tried to develop and distribute the abortion pill. So um, in 1992, abortion with pills, what we today call combination pills, mifepristone and misoprostol, um, in 1992, abortion with pills were not legal. Um, But activists were working hard to figure out how to bring abortion pills to the United States. And one thing that some activists were trying to do was challenge um, the import ban on RU-486 specifically. So in the United States at that time, um, you were legally allowed to bring some medicines into the United States. But one that you were not allowed to bring into the United States was mifepristone, the abortion pill. And so activists wanted to challenge this import ban, and they needed a test plaintiff. They needed yeah. a pregnant person um, to basically obtain abortion pills in Europe and then try to bring them through customs into the United States.
0: Basically knowingly break the law and intentionally get busted in order to have a court case to challenge.
2: That's that's exactly yeah. right. So um, this case was being orchestrated by an activist named Lawrence Later who was the president of Abortion Rights Mobilization. And Lawrence later and his group were trying to identify a test plaintiff. And they were connected to Women's Choice in Oakland. um, And Women's Choice helped connect Leona Benton, who was open to serving as the test plaintiff with Lawrence Later and Abortion Rights Mobilization to, um, you know, precipitate the case.
0: And she's like this young... Was she like in college? She was like a... She was in Berkeley, right? Like, she was this young woman, early 20s, something like that.
2: Leona was in her 20s. She was living in Berkeley. You know, she's a deeply political person. Um, So she um, went to England and obtained her pills with Lawrence later and his team. And they brought them back through customs. And exactly as they anticipated would happen, customs seized Leona's pills. So, um, Leona and, the and this team... was
0: like very orchestrated in a way that yes. was almost like comical to the point where they're like, "We want you to wear a mini skirt, so like you'll be more what? Like, what was the point of the mini skirt again?" I'm so like, there was like they wanted her to be kind of like more of a, a photogenic victim or something like that.
2: Yeah, Leona told me about how she remembered how they asked her to wear a black mini skirt on her return trip so that she'd have more media appeal. But she, she told me she didn't know what they were thinking. Like maybe maybe yeah, it was to make her more sympathetic or something like that. Um, you know, they, they had a script for her. They wanted her to basically read from the script, um, upon deplaning at JFK and having her pills seized. Um, so yes, you're you're exactly right. The entire um incident was entirely scripted and there was the specific kind of objective to be able to challenge the courts um, in order for Leona to get her pills back. So a New York court ruled in Leona's favor but then a court of appeals stayed that ruling and it went to the Supreme Court which is exactly what the activists wanted to happen. And this all happened very quickly because Leona was pregnant and the question was whether she would get her pills back to be able to use um, to induce miscarriage. So in the end, the Supreme Court did not rule that Leona should get her pills back, but they left open the question of whether seizure of the pills interfered with her constitutional right to abortion, which, um, you know, some sort of legal analyst said was a win. So the case, even though it wasn't a win on the surface, marked an important turning point for the project of bringing abortion with pills to the United States. And Leona, uh, along with Women's Choice Clinic, just deserves so much of the credit for this uh, sort of tactical feat.
0: Eventually, in the year 2000, eight years after Leona Benton's case, the FDA approved the abortion medication, mifepristone. But that, of course, was not the end of the battle. In recent years, more and more states have been outlawing abortion pills. And uh, just last month, September 2023, a mom from Nebraska was sentenced to two years in prison for providing abortion drugs to her 17-year-old daughter. The daughter got 90 days. On the other hand, California has been busy passing legislation to make this a kind of sanctuary state for abortion providers and patients. In just the past few weeks, Governor Gavin Newsom signed one law that'll protect California doctors and pharmacists from being prosecuted for mailing abortion pills to other states, and another law that allows doctors from states where abortion is illegal to get trained here. The point is that this struggle over reproductive rights has been a A tug-of-war that's been going back and forth for decades and will most likely continue on for the foreseeable future. Many of the women who are part of the Oakland Women's Choice Clinic are still a part of the struggle, but the clinic itself is no more. Considering that we live in one of the wealthiest regions in the entire world, the story of why this clinic was forced to close is a frustrating one. To say the least why did it eventually shut down? Why is the women's clinic no longer here in oakland?
2: yeah, that's a good question. I mean it's astonishing, like how the clinic was able to you know largely under the directorship of Lindsey Comey, keep its doors open for decades, and really it did so by building community relationships, doing grassroots fundraising, recruiting. Um, volunteer interns to come um, and work at the clinic and uh, develop skills that would empower them, enable them to go on and work at uh, reproductive rights clinics elsewhere. Um, you know, But it wasn't until 2009 that the clinic actually closed its doors for good. And this was uh, basically amid the 2008 financial crisis when California froze medical reimbursements. And at that point, many of the patients that Women's Choice served were low-income people on Medi-Cal. And so that was a death knell for the clinic. And when the clinic couldn't get their reimbursements, they couldn't pay their rent.
0: I mean, it's just so frustrating the contrast. At the same time that the government is bailing out Wall Street to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars going to like the richest people on the planet, these healthcare clinics i'm sure women's clinic in oakland wasn't the only one or closing because they are getting their you know payments frozen so it's like throwing uh working class people who need healthcare to the wolves while bailing out the 0. 0.001%. i mean that really just says so much about that moment in time and i think why people are still so frustrated about the way that all played out um, but let's not end there. <laughs> let's end on something a little bit happier. Um, this is like, you know, I think this, this is an intense story. And, I, you know, I wouldn't say it's a feel-good story, but I do think any story that's about, you know, women taking control of their bodies is, is very powerful and very positive. Um, and so I'm just wondering, you know, as we're sitting here with this copy of this book that's coming out on November 14th, you're looking at five years of your life put into this incredible work. What when you think back on like all the interviews you did, all the you know research that you compiled, like what's something that pops out in your mind of something that you just want people to kind of take away from this project?
2: Yeah, I mean that's um, that's a really deep question, and I feel like there are different ways uh, to possibly answer this question. Um, you know, we're living in a time when. 21 states ban or severely restrict abortion access um, and we're seeing the right take on birth control um, next and continue to escalate the attack on um, gender affirming health care and trans rights I mean it's just it's really dire you know and once again I, I really believe that this movement history is a story about Both survival and community power building. And the lessons are really, really deep and important. Um, You know, with regard to self help practices and menstrual extraction specifically, you know, we just don't know what's going to happen with medication abortion or abortion with pills. Just in the last six months, we've seen uh, a U.S. appeals court roll back. uh, updated regulations on mifepristone, which have limited, further limited access to abortion pills around the country for many people. Um, and we know that the right wants to see the FDA reverse its approval of abortion pills altogether, right? Um, you know, so some health, some self-helpers who I have talked to have said that we need to keep this knowledge alive and that, you know, once again, you um, Suction abortion in clinic procedures are the bottom line. We have abortion pills, thank goodness for abortion pills, and abortion pills are not enough. Um, If you have an incomplete abortion with pills, if you experience clotting with pills that you just can't tolerate, um, that procedure in clinic is going to be used to complete that abortion. And so we need clinics and we need in-clinic procedures in addition to abortion with pills. So those are a couple of, like, you know, just sort of no-brainer, really critical takeaways that I think everyone should hear. Um, But other takeaways are broader political insights, powerful political insights that have certainly been transformative for me. One self-helper whose pseudonym is Max, who practiced self-help in the Bay Area for many, many years, said to me, I want the readers of your book to know that they can do this wherever they are. And I think that's a really important sentiment that I want to leave you all with. And another thing that I'll say is that, you know, really, once again, just the power of small affinity group work, um, what we can do when we get together in small groups and work with our hands to accomplish our goal, it's actually profound. And we can have fun while we're doing it. That's another thing that I learned in the course of this research is that even when our work is really hard and it's really serious and it's life or death, we have to have fun. Lindsay once said to me, joy is our revolutionary duty. And I loved that so much. I just thought that's absolutely true, right? Our work has to be joyful.
0: Now, I think, that, I think that's really important to add because, you know, there's this, uh, you always see stories now about like this epidemic of loneliness and people feel so alienated and everyone's doing everything on Zoom and behind screens and virtually. And this work, of course, that you've described in this book is vitally important, but also it wasn't just about, you know, educating each other and performing these services. These women became like best friends. They became families. And like, there's still a lot of them are connected after all these years and like, This is the kind of most powerful political organizing, the kind that goes all the way, you know, deep to the core of your life, you know, and it seems like that you interviewed so many women for this book, and it seems like their lives were connected in so many profound ways, and it was, you know, because these values they shared and and their willingness to work together. So thank you for writing Deep Care, The Radical activists Who Provided Abortions defied the Law and Fought to Keep Clinics Open coming out very soon on AK Press. Angela Hume, thanks a lot for joining me today. I really appreciate this conversation.
2: Oh, Liam, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. And I'll add, you can pre-order Deep Care at AK Press. And $2 of each pre-ordered book will go toward a campaign called Keep Our Clinics, which helps provide material support to independent clinics to help them keep their doors open.
0: Yes, absolutely. So, Don't buy it from Amazon. All right, thanks everyone. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I also want to thank the Poetry Center and Digital Archive at San Francisco State University. And uh, of course, I also want to send a massive shout out to everyone supporting East Bay Yesterday on Patreon. This show, this podcast, is supported primarily through small donations from listeners. And if you want to show your love for East Bay Yesterday, you can find a link to my Patreon page at, uh, you guessed it, eastbayyesterday.com. For everyone asking about the East Bay Yesterday hats and shirts... The, uh, the hats are currently sold out. I'm not sure if Oaklandish is gonna make more, but there are, for now, um, some shirts still available. You can find those uh, at the Oaklandish shops or their online web store. If you enjoyed this episode, please, please, please share it. Share it on social media, tell your friends, use that little share button in the podcast app. Uh, however you like to share things, please, uh, this is an independent show. And uh, it pretty much only spreads through word of mouth. So again, if you dug today's story, please pass it along to someone else who uh, who might find it interesting, useful, or uh, just uh, wanna check it out as well. Music for this episode came from Justin Lee. And finally, don't forget to sign up for my newsletter. It's free, I only send it out about once a month, and uh, you can find the link for that at eastbayyesterday.com what is in the newsletter you might be wondering to yourself uh well here's one example details about a free event i'm doing all about mountain view cemetery Uh, that event is happening around halloween it's at the oakland public library and again you can find all the details for that in my newsletter Uh, another thing that you'll find in there very soon is details on the richmond history boat tours that i will be doing again in early 2024. Uh, links for those tickets will be in the newsletter coming out very soon That's about it. Thanks again for listening. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue, and this, of course, has been East Bay Yesterday.